Good morning and welcome. So excited that you're all here worshiping with us today, whether you're in Center Court West or in East or joining us online. Very thankful that y'all are here. I am very excited to be here. There are only 10 days left until Christmas. I don't know if you knew that, which means I have eight days left to procrastinate before I go Christmas shopping. I, uh, I talked to a woman last week who said that she finished all of her Christmas shopping the week after Thanksgiving. Uh, I know, I can feel the resentment, I know. It's, uh, and I just wondered, like, what would it be like to be that responsible, you know? Uh, she probably does her taxes in February, it's crazy. Anyway, so, in anticipation of Christmas, we are going to be doing a two-part series called Christmas from Beginning to End. And so we're going to be talking about the Christmas story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And the hope is to show you that scripture, the story of scripture, the story of the Bible is all one story. It's not just a bunch of stories thrown together. It's all one story. And the Christmas story is the climax of this story. And so today is going to be part one. And Pastor Dan next week will be doing part two. And as you know, every good story has drama, right? Uh, Or if it doesn't have drama, it better have Keanu Reeves in it. And just like TNT, the Bible has drama, right? And so to fully understand the drama of this story, we're going to need to go back to the beginning, to the Genesis. And so that's where we're going to start. If you would like a Bible, if you'd like to try to follow along, go ahead and raise your hand. Ushers have come down the aisle. They'd love to give you one. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that Bible. We love you, and that's our gift to you. But just a heads up, we're going to be all over the place in Scripture today. So good luck keeping up. I believe in you. All right. So in the beginning, in in Genesis, we see that God has created everything including us, who uh, we are the crown jewel of his creation. We were made in his own image. Why? Why did he do that? Well, he created all of us, he created all of this as an expression of his perfect love for us. God created us to have loving relationships with him and with one another. And so in order for that to happen, God created us with the ability to make choices, right? God gave us free will, because love is always a choice. Love has to be a choice. You can't force someone to be in a loving relationship with you, right? Like if you were to ask my wife, Kathleen, so Kathleen, why'd you marry Adam? And she goes, well, I didn't really have a choice. (laughs) Your first thought wouldn't be, oh, that sounds like true love, right? (laughs) No, you'd be like, are you okay? Like, do you need me to call the police? Blink twice if you need me to call the police, right? Forced love is not actual love. Just like forced obedience from like fear or from threats, that's not actual obedience, right? That's slavery. But God, God created us to be free and to be full of love so that we can have loving relationships with him and with one another. And then we messed it all up almost immediately. Uh, The story of Adam and Eve, I always used to think, like I would scoff at the story of Adam and Eve because like how hard is it to stay away from one tree, right? Like you have all of paradise, just don't even look at it. Just go away, right? Like why, how, how difficult is this? Like are, are, are humans really that stubborn and rebellious? And then I became a parent and I realized that the answer is yes, we are, absolutely. Um, my daughter, Juliet, she is my oldest daughter. She's two years old and I used to love playing blocks with her, like building block castles, things like that. But recently, It's not so fun anymore 
because I will spend like 45 minutes building this awesome, extravagant block castle. And then I'll turn to Juliet. I'll say, Juliet, look at this awesome castle. And she'll, like her instinct now is to walk over to it and be like, and like just completely destroy it. And while she's doing it, she's like, like this evil laugh, right? And that's not her normal laugh, by the way. Uh, like it, it's a laugh that tells me that she knows what she's doing is destructive and bad, and she's loving it, right? Like she's enjoying it. Uh, and it's like, where did you learn that? You're two. Like, I didn't teach you that. Like, how do you, like, what is this? And, uh, and one of my not-so-proud parenting moments, after she destroyed my awesome castle that I spent so much time working on, I, uh, my instincts kind of kicked in and I was like, fine, let's see how you like it. And I took like the top two blocks off of her castle, just like the top two, barely even broke it. And, and I said, I think, how do you like it? And uh, Juliet looked at me, the person that she trusts so much. And she looks as if like I just stabbed her in the back. Like I just totally betrayed her. And like she doesn't know what to believe anymore, right? Like she can't trust me anymore. And so her little lower lip pops out, you know, and uh, her eyes well up with tears. And she immediately takes off running into the other room and is just sobbing really loud. And my wife, Kathleen, calls out from the other room. She's like, what's wrong? Why is Juliet crying? And I yell back, because uh, she broke my castle, and so I broke her castle, you know? <laughs> you mess with the bull, you get the horns. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Welcome to the real world, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and my wife just yells back, you're 32 years old. <laughs> and I scream back, I know. I'm an idiot. All right. The point is, who am I to judge Adam and Eve, right? Like, we all have the ability to become vengeful, angry, stupid, selfish, jealous creatures, right? even towards the people that we love most in the world, even towards the God who loves us perfectly, who created all of this for us. And I think that is the flip side of free will, right? We have the ability to, to choose love, but we also have the ability to choose rebellion. And mankind's rebelliousness Mankind's rebellion introduced sin and death into the world. And that sin fractured God's creation. That sin fractured our relationships with one another. And worst of all, that sin fractured our relationship with God. See, sin was never a part of God's plan. Like, God didn't create us to sin. But God, because he created us out of love, created us knowing that rebellion and rejection were possible, right? Love is always risky because there's always the possibility of rejection. I know there are plenty of people listening right now who are very familiar with that feeling of rejection and the tremendous grief that comes with rejection, that bitter sting. Maybe you offer your love to a spouse or to a family member or to a friend or maybe even to your own child and they chose to reject you. And the grief that comes with that is tremendous. And God experiences that grief every single time we choose sin over him. Sin was never part of the plan. And every time we choose sin, we also we lose a piece of our humanity. 
See, God created us in his image. That is what makes us human. He created us to love one another, to love him, and to take care of creation. When we choose sin, we are choosing to hate or to slander or to hurt or to murder even one another instead of loving one another. When we choose sin, we choose to worship other idols or even worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. When we choose sin, we choose to abuse and consume and destroy God's creation instead of caring for it. And we can see just from the first few dozen chapters of Genesis how quickly uh, sin can spiral out of control until our humanity is barely recognizable. We barely look like the humans that God created us to be. But our God's love is relentless, thank God. And he refused to abandon his creation to sin and death. Instead, he came up with a plan. He chose a people to make a covenant promise with in order to heal and redeem this broken creation. In fact, he actually made multiple covenants throughout the scope of scripture, all aimed at healing what has been broken. Uh, But for today's purposes, I want us to focus on two of those covenants and a prophecy that are central to the overall story of scripture. So the first one's gonna be found in Genesis 12, one through three. Genesis 12, one through three. This is God's covenant with Abraham or Abram. Here we go. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right, so uh, Abram or Abraham, right? Father Abraham, um, God chooses him and his descendants, which would become the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others, so that you can bless all the families of the earth, right? God was not playing favorites when he chose Abraham. God was working within his creation, God was working through people in order to accomplish his good purposes, in order to heal what had been broken, to rescue and redeem the world. The problem is we're just not very good at following the plan, right? John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist denomination, as well as a very gifted preacher and theologian, uh, he was also known for being a very fiery preacher who uh, his sermons were very, let's say, blunt, Right? Like he didn't pull any punches uh, when he preached. And in fact, it's, it's a miracle he wasn't punched in the face after every single sermon that he gave. And one of my favorite sermons uh, was one that he gave to a group of very wealthy and powerful Christians in England. And he had spent a little bit of time with them and he noticed that these Christians, uh, they did not live generously at all. They did not share their resources at all. But what they would do is that they would constantly throw these extravagant parties that they would only invite the social elite to, where they would kind of just show off each other's wealth. And so this is what John Wesley said to their faces. Here we go. Many of your brothers, beloved of God, have no food to eat. They have no clothes to put on. They have no place to lay their head. Why is that? Because you unjustly and cruelly detain from them what your master lodged in your hands on purpose to supply their needs. Your extravagance steals food from their mouths. Can you imagine 
saying that to somebody's face, right? Like, I would be afraid I'd get punched. But he's not wrong, right? Like, what he is saying is true. The plan from the very beginning was for God to heal the world through people, to bless some so that they could participate in the act of blessing others. See, God is always looking for our participation because he wants a loving relationship with us and loving relationships are never just one-sided. If you're in a marriage where you are constantly loving the other person and serving the other person and looking for ways uh, to bless the other person and the other person does nothing in return, I would say that that is probably not a great marriage, right? God is always looking for our participation. So God's covenant with Abraham was designed for God to work through his people to bless the whole world to restore what had been broken. That was the plan. All right, so let's fast forward a few hundred years to God's covenant with King David. So you'll remember David, uh, God chose David to be the king of Israel, hopefully to help the Israelites uh, live in obedience towards God's plans. After all, David had the lofty uh, reputation of being known as the man after God's own heart, right? Um, Unfortunately, David also had a heart that was prone to being overwhelmed by lust and by fear and by violence, including murder. Um, However, God's grace is infinite and there's no sin big enough to overcome God's grace. So God still chooses to make a covenant promise with David. Let's read that. It's going to be 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7. 12 through 16. Here we go. When your days are over, God is talking to David here. So David is getting old. He's saying, when you die, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. So here he's talking about Solomon, King Solomon, who does become the next king of Israel, uh, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Remember, Solomon built the temple uh, where they believed that God dwelled. So he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I, will stab, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, uh, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me your throne will be established forever. I'm going to read that last line again because this is the really important part. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. All right, so again, the important thing to note from this covenant, this covenant promise that God made with David is that God, God promised that through David's lineage, he would establish an eternal kingdom. How he was going to do that They didn't know, right? But that was the promise that through David, his throne would last forever. There would be an eternal kingdom built through his lineage. Again, but there's a problem. See, God, the God of Israel is perfect at being the God of Israel, right? But God's people, again, are absolutely terrible at being God's people. It's like God is building a block castle. And then he asks hey, do you want to help, come help me build this block castle? And we're like, yeah, I'll help you. Destroy it, right? And we like evil laugh after. That's essentially what we've been doing this whole time. Uh, so just listen to how God talks about the Israelites in Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, one through, or 2 through 5. Listen to this. 
Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own, man, uh, its own manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured and your whole heart is afflicted. I know there's some parents in the room who are probably thinking, man, that sounds an awful lot like what I said to Billy last night when I come, I'm trying to sneak out, right? Uh, but really, you, you read this and like as a parent, really can only imagine how heartbreaking it must be to watch your child, who you love more than anything in the world, right? who you have spent years and years pouring into and raising and loving and trying to teach them uh, to do right and to put them on the path to success, only to watch them make poor decision after poor decision after poor decision after poor decision. Right? It breaks your heart. And it's because you know something that for most people it has to be learned through experience and through wisdom. And that is that actions have consequences, right? There are ripple effects to our choices. And the Israelites kept choosing sin over faithfulness to God. They were not interested in keeping their end of the covenant, which was to be God's people and to bless the whole world, right? But our God is faithful, even when we are unfaithful. He doesn't abandon his creation. He doesn't abandon Israel. In fact, I want you to listen to this prophecy from Isaiah 9. Just a few chapters later, later, Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. This prophecy will sound awfully familiar. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That sounds familiar, right? So this, what I just read, is the hope of Israel, that one day God would send a king, God would send a Messiah who would finally sit on the throne of David and establish an eternal kingdom, a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. That was the hope of Israel. And the Israelites held on to this hope of a coming king, of a Messiah, for 700 years, which is a long time. Right? And in fact, those 700 years were some of the darkest in Israel's history. See, because God, He doesn't abandon Israel, He doesn't abandon us to our sin. However, there are still consequences to our actions, there are ripple effects to our choices. And every time Israel chose sin over God, there were consequences. And so over the next few hundred years, the Israelites were conquered and dominated by enemy nation after enemy nation after enemy nation to the point where the Babylonians, when they conquered them, they kicked them out of Israel. 
And then they destroyed the temple, the place where they believed God's presence was made manifest. And then even later on, when the Persians allowed them to return to Israel, they were returned under Persian rule. So it says they were strangers in their own land. And God's presence was no longer with them because the temple was destroyed. And then they tried to rebuild the temple, but they said it was never the same. They felt like God's presence never actually returned to the temple. In fact, for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, the Israelites did not experience God's presence at all. They didn't hear from God at all. Nothing. Radio silence. Can you imagine that kind of darkness? That how difficult it would be to hold on to hope. The only thing that they had to hold on to was the hope of a covenant promise given years ago. A hope that, again, became increasingly difficult to believe in as the years ticked by and as their enemies prevailed while they suffered, as the darkness began to choke them. And I know that there are people listening here today where that place sounds awfully familiar to you. That place of darkness where it's hard to believe in anything, where it's hard to hold on to hope. Maybe there's some people here who you have gotten yourself into a really bad financial situation and you're just drowning in debt. And so you spend your day ignoring dozens of calls from collection agencies, wondering how in the world am I going to dig myself out of this hole, but you're too ashamed to ask for help. Or maybe others, you are just really fighting addiction, battling with addiction, and it has just enslaved you, and you long to be free. You desperately want to be free, but at the same time, you're scared of what your life would look like without that addiction. Maybe for others of you, you have recently lost someone that you love dearly, or you have a loved one who's suffering, and so the grief is just overwhelming right now. And you have so many questions that you're afraid that you'll never get answers to. If that's you, if you're in that dark place, I want you to stick with me right now. Because the story's not over yet. In fact, it's just getting to the good part. All right? So after hundreds of years of waiting, we finally arrive to Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33, where an angel, Gabriel, appears to a poor Jewish teenage girl, and he's got some big news, all right? So Luke 1, 31 through 33, here we go. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So in the person of Jesus, the Messiah and the king that the Israelites had been waiting for, for literally hundreds of years, they had been expecting for hundreds of years, he arrives in a way that no one could have ever expected. Jesus didn't arrive in a palace. The king didn't arrive in a palace. He arrived in a cave, right? Jesus didn't arrive to a parade of adoring fans. He arrived to farm animals and two unwed teenagers, right? But that's not the only plot twist. There's more. Let's look at John 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14. 
we're going to see that there's more to Jesus than just being king and Messiah. John 1, 1 through, 4 and verse, 1 through 5 and verse 14. Here we go. So in the beginning was the Word. And so the Word here refers to the second part of the Holy Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Word refers to the Son, refers to Jesus. Anytime God is revealed to us, anytime God chooses to reveal himself to us, that is the Word of God, Jesus, right? So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of truth and grace. So Jesus... Jesus is the very God from the beginning of our story who created all of this. Jesus is the very God of Abraham who created a covenant promise with the people of Israel. Jesus is the very God who parted the Red Sea and who tumbled the walls of Jericho. And he shows up to us wearing a diaper in a cave with an unwed teenage mom. This is known as the incarnation, God made flesh, God taking on human flesh. Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man, 100% human. And in the person of Jesus, from the incarnation all the way to the resurrection, God's full plan is finally revealed to us. So here we are, we have arrived. We are at the climax of the story, that in the person of Jesus, God took on flesh, not to become a human, but to become the human. In Jesus, in the transcendent one, all humanity was embodied in him. And he refused every temptation. He did not give in to sin. Instead of choosing sin, instead of choosing to give in to temptation, he chose to live faithfully. Instead of destroying the block castle, Jesus chose to help Build it. And by block castle, of course, I mean God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the eternal king of the lineage of David who came here and built, inaugurated God's kingdom on earth. So Jesus is both God keeping his end of the covenant promise and humanity keeping their end, our end of the covenant promise. Jesus succeeded where we continuously failed. In fact, Jesus was faithful all the way to the cross. And it was at the cross that all of humanity embodied in Jesus was judged. At the cross, Jesus took on the consequences for our sin. He took on the consequences of us breaking our end of the covenant. And then in his resurrection, the redemption of all mankind was made complete. So in order to unite humanity with himself, God literally united humanity with himself. And this was God's plan revealed in Jesus. A plan that was so twisty, a plan that was so unexpected, that honestly, most people had a really hard time following it and understanding it. Like M. Night Shyamalan wishes he could have written this story, right? In fact, that's why Paul 
talked about how uh, the idea that God became man and died on a cross, it was foolishness to Greeks and it was scandalous to the Jews. Because for the Greeks, in order to be a God, you must be supremely powerful, right? You must have supreme knowledge. You must be over and above us lowly humans. And the idea that a God would die at the hands of mere humans, it's laughable. It's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. And then for the Jews, the Messiah, their king, was meant to come here and rescue Israel, was meant to defeat Israel's enemies and help establish the eternal kingdom of Israel. And so the idea that their Messiah, their king, would come and then die at the hands of Israel's enemies, that's scandalous. That was unthinkable, right? See, the Jews and the Greeks, they had their own preconceived notions of who God was and what God was going to do. And Jesus showed up and he subverted all of their expectations. But for Christians, the incarnation is foundational to our faith because we believe that is in the person of Jesus, that not only is God's plan revealed, but that God's true character and essence is revealed. In other words, we know what God is like by looking at Jesus because God is Jesus. Jesus is God. So we don't take our preconceived notions of who God is and what God is going to do and we place them on Jesus. That's not what we do. Instead, our notion of who God is comes from the person of Jesus. And what Jesus shows us is that God is love. That's his essence. That's his character, is love. God is love. So why would God willingly choose to empty himself in order to take on human flesh, in order to experience pain and heartbreak and brokenness and rejection? Well, because love is a choice and God is love, right? Why would God risk being born to a poor Jewish teenager in a Roman-occupied territory during a genocide? Because love is risky and God is love. Why would God willingly take on our sin and our guilt and our shame? Because love sacrifices. Love is sacrificial and God is love. So in this Advent season, as we wait with great hope and expectation to celebrate the birth of our King Jesus, I want you to remember that the Christmas story is ultimately a story about God choosing you. The whole story of scripture, in fact, is a story about God choosing you, about God risking everything for you, about God sacrificing everything for you. Because God is love, and God loves you. Next week, Pastor Dan is going to tell us part two of the story, and we're going to learn that the heart of God's plan uh, actually still remains the same, that God wants to work within his creation through his people to redeem and bless the whole world. But to close, I want to address the people in the room who are in that dark place that we talked about earlier. I want to talk to the people here who are listening who, again, you're stuck in that darkness and you feel like it's going to be impossible to really hold on to this hope that we talked about to truly believe that you could be loved, that there is even a God that loves you. I want to talk directly to you, and what I want to do is I want to read a prophecy to you, a prophecy from Scripture. And as I read this prophecy, when you hear these words, I want you to know and then do your very best to believe that these words were specifically meant for you today, right here, right now. 
Okay? This prophecy comes from Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to pray. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful, steadfast love promised to David. Just as God made a covenant with David, a covenant that he never ever broke, that he fulfilled in the person of Jesus, he wants you today, right now, to come to him with an open heart, with open hands, empty, surrendered. And he promises to fill you up, to give you a life of joy and peace that is only found in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I am just so thankful for mornings like this morning where we get to gather together and just get to hear about and listen and and sing about your love for us. Father, and I just pray that this morning and this whole Advent season is just a reflection on the lengths that you went through to rescue us, to redeem us. And that every time we think about the Christmas story, every time we think about the truth that you came here, you took on flesh, that we just remember and believe how loved we are by you and that our response is to love you in return. Because, Father, there is no risk in loving you in return. There is no risk of rejection when we come to you. And I pray that we all know that to be absolutely true this morning. And for the people listening who are just struggling to believe that, the people who are just surrounded by darkness, who want desperately to have some kind of hope, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit is doing a miraculous work in their hearts, that you are burying your hope deep within them and that it just blossoms into a beautiful faith. Father, again, we're just so thankful for your love for us, for your son. I pray that we bear witness to your love for the whole world to see. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.